And so we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, we encourage you to open up to that section of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available at our communion table in the back. We encourage you to have God's Word open in your lap as we read it and preach it this morning. I'll be referencing other parts of Scripture that we'll have on the screen, but I encourage you to have this text in particular open as we look to it this morning. So our message this morning is going to be entitled, Running the Race Well. I don't know if there's any runners or people who've done foot races, cross-country races before, but I think we can all understand it doesn't matter how good of a race you run, the most important part is always how you finish. How you finish. You want to finish the race well. And if you've seen on the internet, like I have, examples of people not finishing well, they can be pretty comical at times. My mind goes to some of those races that I've seen clips on social media of, say it's a motorcycle race. I've seen this one a couple times, and one guy's out in the lead. He thinks he has it in the bag. He's celebrating before he crosses the finish line by popping a wheelie, only to be passed by a guy last minute and coming in second. He did not finish that race well. I've seen the same thing happen with a cyclist on a race, raise his arms up in victory, thinking that he's won the race as he crosses, only to find out that there's one more lap left and everybody else is passing him. Not just one person, but everybody else is passing him. And maybe one of the most painful ones to watch is a runner, fatigued but excited at the very end of his run, about to cross the finish line, and just a few steps before jumps in kind of celebration, only to land and break his ankle, very visibly so. It's one of those cringe videos and crawls across the finish line being passed up by two or three people. You see, the most important part of a race is, is how you finish, to have the mental clarity and the wherewithal to, to look towards that end and run with a sense of purpose and determination, to run the race well. Paul speaks of the Christian life often in his epistles as a race, and the most important part of our Christian race is how we finish. And so that's what we're going to give particular attention to in this section as we follow Paul's reasoning. Our three points this morning are going to be number one, and we'll spend most of our time on this point, how to run the race well according to Paul's instruction here. Number two, warning not to stray from the path. And three, running to obtain the prize. And so if you would and you're able, I would ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. I will begin in verse 21 of chapter 3. Sorry, am I in the right spot? Yeah, sorry. Verse 12 of chapter 3. I'm in the wrong passage. That's why that's looking very confusing. Here we go. Wrong bookmark. All right, verse 12 of chapter 3. The word of God says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, 
their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. And so we're going to begin with this point of Paul's instructions on how to run a race well, particularly the race that is our Christian walk. And the first thing that I want us to notice is, yet again, Paul's example. We've all seen it in athletes, this overconfidence, being cocky, thinking much of oneself, and how that can often lead to our downfall. But Paul here shows his humility. He shows his humility in these first few verses when he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's interesting, if you were here with us last week, you saw Paul boast about some of his fleshly confidences or his ability to maybe find some confidence in his flesh, but it's important to understand that as he spoke that earlier in the passage, it was to the shame of those who thought that they could earn a righteousness of their own. His point was, if there was anybody who could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. By your own standards, I have met more obligations of righteousness than you who claim that you can achieve righteousness through your flesh. But even I know that all of these accomplishments are rubbish. Paul spoke previously in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, of some of these fleshly accomplishments. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is not Paul claiming to be perfect, but saying that if you strive for perfection, as I used to do in my life, you may list off similar accomplishments as I've listed off here, but none of these can earn you righteousness. It's only found by faith in Christ. And so that was Paul in his flesh, immature and unrepentant at the time, but now having been redeemed by Christ, been humbled by his need of a savior and his relationship with Jesus, he is the first to say that I am not perfect. And it would have been easy to maybe see Paul as someone to look up to as the perfect example. He in many ways was an apostle of all the apostles, more skilled, more trained, more influential, responsible for writing much of what we have as the New Testament. And yet even he would be the first to say, I have not already obtained this. I and myself am not perfect. And the reason why Paul may emphasize this, although he uses himself as an example, I think part of it is that there were people going around, as we've talked about, after Paul to influence the church who may have been preaching or teaching that one can achieve perfection. This probably was taught at some point by some people in Philippi, and it's been taught by others throughout church history that we can achieve perfection in this life. But friends, we cannot. 
our sinful flesh is still with us. This is part of the struggle that you and I face as Christians. We live in the already and the not yet. We are already made righteous in Christ because of what he's done. And we are growing in righteousness, but we will not experience that perfection as we're going to see later until we go to be with him or until he comes again for us. So do not be fooled by these messages, messages that you can achieve perfection and find more confidence in your flesh. That's a turning away from the gospel. For us today, we may see this type of teaching present in what is called the health and wealth gospel, that you can achieve perfect health, perfect health and be free of any sickness by claiming the name of Jesus, that you could become successful and wealthy and have all your earthly desires fulfilled because of your faith in Christ. This is a distortion of the gospel, a means to claim to be perfect. And it is something that we should turn away from. Instead, we ought to model our lives after Paul, who is humble. That even in all of our accomplishments that we may achieve, all of our righteousness that we may grow into, knowing yet that God has more in store for us. You see, humility is essential in the lives of every Christian, especially those whom we would see as leaders. Follow humble leaders, not arrogant leaders. It's okay for a leader to say, imitate me as long as it comes with the provision as I imitate Christ. He is our perfect example. Paul is merely an imperfect example of him. One that may be useful for us, but we must set our eyes to Jesus as the perfect standard and the perfect savior that we need. And so Paul goes on to talk about this idea of a race. And this is the tension that you and I live in as Christians, as redeemed people of God, the tension of the race. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this picture, this analogy of a race running to the finish line. And it's a good picture for what the Christian life is. As I've stated, we live in what some theologians have called the already and the not yet. We are already declared righteous in Christ, but yet we have not manifested or lived out that righteousness perfectly in our flesh. And so we have this tension of being declared righteous because of Christ's forgiveness, but the need to have a growing righteousness as we walk with Jesus. And that is the sign of saving faith, that we would grow in righteousness, that God's spirit in you would produce his good works in your life. But yet we as Christians are to strive for these things. Paul uses this language of Christ has laid hold of me. I am his. He has bought me. He has saved me. And now I am seeking to lay hold of him for myself. That is the pursuit in which we are in. We are already his, but now we continue to run towards him. And so the image of the race fits well. Draw your attention once again to verse 13, particularly the latter half. Paul says, but one thing I do, my purpose, my goal, my singular focus, one thing I do is pursuing Christ, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, which is to be with him. So I want to talk about this idea of the importance of looking ahead as we run 
to Jesus. Those of you, again, with a running background who may still practice running know that form is important. And one of the worst things you can do, the easiest way to ruin your form and thus slow you down is to look behind you. And Paul says we are not to look behind, but we're to strain forward towards Christ, forgetting what lies behind, to not even turn our heads backwards. So what is it that we are called to forget? I believe it's two things. First and foremost, and what may be most obvious, is our failures. That we're to forget our own failures, particularly our own sins. That even though we may have lived a life in rebellion against God, even though we may walk in sin, still, as we pursue Christ, we are to forget these things and put them away. Don't let them distract you from running the race well. This is something that Paul definitely needed to do. As righteous of a man as he may be, as he was writing the Philippians, he was also a man of deep sin. That he had sinned against God in ways that that you and I, quite frankly, probably have not. So much so that we're going to read in Paul's own words that he considered himself the chief of sinners. If you're not familiar with who Paul was, he was once a man known as Saul. A religious man, a Jewish man, passion, passionate and zealous for his Jewish faith. So much so that when these Christians started to come and to preach this new gospel, this new faith in a man called Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, Paul was adamantly opposed to it. So much so that he sought to destroy this new faith by destroying the lives of those who have claimed to follow it. Paul was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? As he was persecuting Christians, he was rebelling against Christ. And so, radical transformation, saved, given a new name and a new office as apostle and became probably the most influential person in regard to the spreading of the gospel in those early years of the church. And so Paul, looking back on these things, could have been distracted by this, could have been torn up by guilt, could have let his past sins hinder his ability to pursue Jesus. But instead, he turned it to glory in Jesus instead. Read with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy For this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul did not let his past sins, his past rebellions, distract him from running the race well. In fact, he gloried all the more in the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus offers to sinners. In many ways, Paul's message, if even me 
can be forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus, then that forgiveness is definitely available for you as well. We all have sins that we may deeply, deeply regret. Ones that have hurt loved ones. Ones that we know were offensive to the Lord because of how rebellious they truly were. But friends, do not let these sins distract you from running the race. As Paul stated earlier, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, knowing that your sins are forgiven in Jesus because what he has done. Jeremiah 31, 34, the latter half of this verse, God is speaking about this promise that is going to be fulfilled in the new covenant. God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so if God is not holding your sin against you anymore, why should you? Are your standards higher than the perfect and holy one of God that you would hold yourself to a higher standard than he would? No. His standard was even higher than yours. See, you fail to think that you have some way of paying for these sins, but you do not. God, knowing how high the standard was, sent his son, who was the only one who could actually pay it for you. That is why he is able to say, I remember their sins no more because they have been punished and put away in Jesus. Let them not be a hindrance to your race any longer. And so we're called to forget our past failures. But also what I found interesting as I was studying this text, many commentators said that it's not just the failures that we're being called to forget, but also the victories. Don't let past success, past victories, cause you to be distracted in this race as well. You see, we're sometimes tempted by what is good in the past, to like what we've seen back there, to maybe rely on some of those things or to wish that things could be like they were. But no, each day is a new day. The race continues. We must press on towards Christ, not living in the past. You know, being in Spokane, this analogy fits well. Many of you would understand this better than even I would. But my mind thinks of the NCAA tournament that happens every March for basketball, right? Some of these teams experience great victory, and there's a time to celebrate that victory, right? But that time is short because there is another game happening in front of them. And if they're still living in the past, still celebrating that old victory, then they may be distracted when it comes to the next game and what they are called to do or achieve or perform. Can't live in the past. Yes, there's a time to celebrate, but we must press on. We must make progress. The race continues. Don't stop and be complacent. I confess that I've been this way. Many of you might share in this, but I think too many of us as Christians are too focused on past victories, on past successes, that we never experience anymore that we're not pursuing Jesus even further. And so we're called, as Paul says in verse 13, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us strain towards that one goal. And as we do, it will be a sign of our maturity in the faith. Paul tells us in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. And so we must strive towards maturity. It's immature to believe that we can obtain perfection in this life. But it's also immature to not strive towards perfection at the same time. We are running the race. We are continuing to move forward towards the upward call of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. We must strive for these things. We must seek to make progress. You see, there's a, I think, a misunderstanding of the gospel at times amongst people. That if Christ has declared me righteous, then it doesn't matter what I do any longer. That I can sit and be complacent in my sin, or even worse, I can continue on into more sin, presuming upon the forgiveness of Jesus. Paul addresses this false way of thinking in another epistle, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, of those who would say, I can not only keep on sinning, but I can sin all the more because there's an infinite amount of grace in Christ Jesus. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, as we'll see. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, this analogy of running a race is often talked about as a walk with God, that there is this forward momentum that we are to live with, that we are to strive for in our relationship with God, that we're to walk with God, towards God, run towards him as we are able to stay still or to even move backwards, is to not do what we've called to do and can even be a sign of no real faith at all, as we'll see. So those who are immature may, in their pride, believe that they can achieve perfection. But those who are immature may also think that this race doesn't ultimately matter. It does. Christians are not perfect, but we are to pursue perfection. We're to follow after Jesus as our perfect example. This is something that I think athletes understand quite well, particularly peak athletes or high-achieving athletes, some of the best in the world, the people that we may look at and be like, man, that guy played a perfect game or that girl played a perfect game. These athletes, I think, understand this analogy that fits with our faith, that we are not perfect, but we're to strive towards perfection. And as we strive towards perfection, we come closer to it, but also realize how far away from it we actually are. I want you to think for a moment about the best athlete that you can think of, someone who's as close to perfect at their sport or their craft as you can think of. And imagine them watching maybe their best game or their best performance ever on film or videotape. This is something that athletes often do to get better, is they watch themselves. 
Now we'll watch it with the untrained eye of thinking that was amazing. But these athletes, because they're striving towards perfection, will always be able to find areas in which they improve. It's a baseball player. Maybe he'll notice that his hands are just a little bit out of position in that swing. If it's a football player, maybe he saw that there was one way to make that run just a little bit better. Shoot, I mean golf. There's always mistakes being made, even by the best golfers in the world, that they themselves, even though they may be the standard of perfection in our eyes, they know what they are striving for, and they can see what still needs to be improved. The idea is that the more progress we make toward perfection, the more improvements we see are needed. And at the same time, all these people must still never stop practicing their fundamentals. Basketball players still practice their free throws. Volleyball players still practice their serve. Golfers still do putting drills. There are certain skills that always need to be practiced because if they're not, then they too will deteriorate. So in the same way, Christians, the more progress we make towards running towards Jesus, the more improvements we can probably see in our own life. That as we begin to understand what the perfect Jesus is actually like, we begin to see how wide of a gap that there truly is between us and him. Thus, we continue to strain forward towards that upward call of God. And I would encourage you to also still practice those fundamentals all along the way. You may have areas that are very specific to you, but all of us need to hone our skills of prayer and Bible study and gathering with other believers, practicing generosity, sharing our faith, obeying God's word, that these are things that we don't move on from but must continue in as well. All these things are areas of growth for us all. So I've been moving through this a little quickly, but let me review some of these applications for this first point of running the race well. First, are you humble enough to admit that you are not perfect? Are you still relying on Jesus? Yes, we're to strive towards these things, but never forget the fundamental truth of the gospel that Christ, Christ gave his perfect obedience, his perfect life on your behalf. And no matter what achievements you may accomplish here in this life or in your Christian walk, don't move past that. Don't go back to putting confidence in your flesh. Be humble, even as Paul was humble. Are you running the race well? Are you striving to lay hold of Christ? Are you distracted by your past failures, having a hard time moving on from those, letting them hinder your current walk or run with the Lord? Look back to the cross. Look back to what Christ has done, that God can say he remembers your sin no more because of what he did. Equally important, are you looking back to past victories? Maybe times that you felt you were really close with the Lord and, and that was good enough to get you through the remainder, of the remainder of these years. Times in which you served the Lord or did this or was part of, a part of this faith community. Are you distracted by those past victories? and becoming complacent with where you are. No, continue to strive towards Christ. Are you having a mature attitude? Are you seeking to grow in your righteousness? Not presuming upon the forgiveness that is in the cross, taking advantage of it, but actually seeking to lay hold of the salvation that we already have in Christ Jesus. 
Let me encourage all of us with a few more verses from Philippians. Because taking this all on our own seems like a lot of pressure on ourselves, does it not? I don't want us to be confused here thinking that these are things that we must do. Instead, we need to again hear the truth and the gift and the grace that these are things that God does in you. That it's not on you to do all these things, that this is evidence of what God is doing in you. Hear the words from Philippians 1 and Philippians 2. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's not that you began a good work in yourselves and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God does it. It's a bit paradoxical because we strain and we strive and we work towards these things, but ultimately it is God at work in you. How do I know this? Look at Philippians 2.13. For it is God, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is transforming your heart, renewing your will and your desires, that your motivation, your striving, your wanting to strive towards holiness, that is a work of God. And so be encouraged, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, that as we seek to strive, as we seek to run this race well, walk with God, know that God is with you, that he is doing this work in you as well, and nothing is impossible with God. So run the race well. A little more quickly on to our next two points. Paul does warn against straying from the path as some had done. He tells us in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Kind of switches analogies here. He's talking about a race earlier. Now he's talking about a walk. A walk is a little more common throughout scripture to describe our journey as believers, that we are to walk with God. And in some ways, I, I prefer the walking analogy. Um, running is hard, right? It takes a lot of effort. But don't underestimate how difficult it is to walk with God as well. Walking takes longer. You need to be more consistent in it. Maybe that's why the Lord speaks more often of walking with him than running with him in the scriptures. But he goes on in verse 18. It says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. And with minds set on earthly things. There's a warning here for those who go astray in this walk or run with the Lord. That if we turn, if we stray from these things, we go from being considered sons or daughters in God to being enemies of the cross. Let me explain these things. It would appear that some, even within the Philippian church, who were part of the fellowship, part of the gathering, Paul has now learned have gone astray. And he describes them in a number of ways. He says their God is their belly, meaning that they're following after their most base desires, their sinful flesh. This isn't just talking about an appetite, but really your appetite for sinful things. He says their glory is their shame. They boast in their sin. 
as we see many in this world do, that they would flaunt the things that God would say we should abhor. And their mindset is on earthly things. We as Christians are to be heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. And he says, ultimately, their end is destruction. That they have turned in such a way that they have turned from God completely, and they are destined to suffer the wrath of God in hell. So how do we make sense of this? Well, first and foremost, let me just say that I think true saving faith is a work of God in you. And there are many scriptures that talk about the security of believers, that God keeps our salvation in heaven guarded with his own hand, that it cannot be lost but the scriptures often speak of those who are with us, but were not of us. Who may show that they're running the race for, for a period of time, but ultimately turn to these more base things. Their God is their belly. Their mind is on earthly things. They glory in their shame. That the church can sometimes be a mixed group of believers and non-believers. It's one of the reasons why we remind ourselves of the gospel often, knowing that there are some, yes, even here this morning, who may be living as Christians, but inwardly have no saving faith. So maybe this will be helpful for some to understand through an analogy, but let me just confess up front that all analogies have their limitations and can be imperfect, but I almost think of it with regard to directions and navigation. I'll confess that I, I'm terrible with directions, that I used to get lost often back in the good old days when you had to, which some of you won't, probably didn't even do this, but there was this thing called MapQuest where you'd print off your maps, you have the piece of paper, and it would tell you where to go, but the problem was it would never tell you if you missed your turn. So you could be going miles and miles having missed it and get lost often. That was me when I was first learning to drive in high school. And lo and behold, this wonder device comes out called the iPhone that has GPS everywhere you go. And I will say, since I've had navigation, since I've had GPS, I've only been lost for short periods of time. But then I can plug in my destination and be guided back to the right direction. Similarly, we as Christians may go astray from the way that God would call us to live. But he has given us his Holy Spirit that we become sons and daughters of God, that he transforms our will, our desire, that even though we may rebel, ultimately God, I believe, brings us back to himself. But there are those who are still seeking to find their own way that may be on the right track with us for some time, but once they stray, they have no way of getting back because they lack that GPS or that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which can only happen through your faith in Christ Jesus. Maybe that's helpful for some of you, maybe it's not. But nevertheless, this is what the Bible clearly teaches, that the church is always going to have some element of believers and non-believers in it. This is depicted, for example, in Jesus' parable of the soils. If you recall, there are four soils. There is the hard soil, the shallow soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And it's only the good soil that, that is saving faith. All these others, even though they show some life for maybe a brief period of time, ultimately wither away. Jesus also spoke about the church 
as consisting of sheep and goats, that there will be a separation of the two, that his are the sheep, but mixed in there are goats that need to be separated at some point. Another analogy is the wheat and the tares, that they'll grow up together, but ultimately be sorted out. Oftentimes, God will be the only one who knows who are truly his. But yet we have a responsibility to take these warnings seriously. To imitate those who have shown genuine, sincere faith in the Lord and be mindful of those who have turned and to not follow in their turning and thus be led astray. This is one of the responsibilities that I have as a pastor and that other leaders, Lord willing, one day in our church as elders have the responsibility to to make these identity markers as clear as we can. For your own benefit, that your faith may be affirmed. Lord willing, I hope to, to do this through a meaningful membership process in this church one day, that you can have pastors and elders and other members affirm you in your walk with the Lord. It's one of the things that we do as we give consideration to people who, who want to be baptized, that, that we would see genuine faith there. And it's one of the reasons why we practice the Lord's Supper as often as we do, that that is a time of self-examination as well. We are responsible to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. Knowing that it's not something you can go back and forth for, but it's still good for us to be sure. And we're told in other scriptures to do this very thing. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 5 through 6 says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So again, it's this idea as we run this race, particularly as we begin to stray or get complacent, examine yourself and let that Holy Spirit, let him who is in it's inside you, guide you back to the Lord. Or maybe you've strayed and you've realized, man, I've been putting my confidence in my own flesh, my own ability to follow this path, that I've been doing it without this, this GPS, without the Holy Spirit, without a true faith in Christ. Let me now repent and believe for the first time and receive his forgiveness. This is what we're to do of ourselves. And dare I say, it's what we're to do with one another. You may have been taught that we're not supposed to judge one another. That's not entirely true. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul is dealing with serious sin in the church, he tells those Christians there to exercise this sort of examination and determination of unrepentant people in their midst. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 13. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This may sound harsh, but what this is, is brotherly love towards one another, that when you see a brother going astray in the faith, point it out, talk to them about it, confront them of their sin, that they may repent and confess and believe that this is the loving thing to do to make sure that we all obtain salvation through Christ. 
This is why we need the church with one another. It is a loving accountability. And so there's warnings to those who may go astray. And when they do, oftentimes it is at great loss. Paul says he's moved with tears. These people, he had known them, he had spent time with them only to discover that they were indeed lost all along. And his heart is moved, and I believe his heart was moved to probably still reach out to them and share the good news of the gospel. And that is our responsibility as we hold one another accountable in the faith. So I hope you would love me, and I hope to love you enough to do that hard task. Let us now turn to our last point. That we are to run to obtain the prize Verse 20 of chapter 3, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As believers, you are citizens of heaven. This is not your home. And you should not feel at home here. You should feel an inward longing to be with God, as we've seen represented in Philippians already. To die is gain. To be with Christ is far better. Or to long for these things. I don't know if you've ever spent much time away from home, but there comes a certain point where you, you long for the comforts and the pleasures of home. Maybe some of you can think back of where you've grown up, and it's not here, and you miss some of those elements. Maybe there's a certain snack or food item or a way of preparing something that you just can't get here. I know I feel that, being from California. Don't hold it against me. Because I long for certain cuisine, certain things that, you know, maybe you're from someplace where you're missing a particular part of your culture or a style of music, or you miss a certain climate, certain kind of weather, And as good as things may be where you are, it never truly feels like home. That is what it should feel like for us as Christians. To be citizens of heaven is to never truly feel at home here, but to long to be with God because that is where our prize is. And our prize is to be with Jesus and to be made like Jesus. Paul says we have the promise at the end of this race, as hard and as, a, as difficult as it may be, we get to be with Jesus and we get to be like Jesus. We will obtain the resurrection. Our lowly bodies will be transformed by his glorious power into a body like his glorious body. And this transformation, I believe, is both external and internal. Right? When we look at the accounts of Jesus and his resurrection body, he, he both looked the same in that you could recognize him as Jesus, but he was also still very different, right? He seemed to glow. He seemed to have the ability to pass, you know, between solid walls, whatever it may be, that there's going to be some sort of external difference that you and I will be able to see in one another as we receive our resurrection bodies from the Lord when he comes again to make all things new. But that change is not just external, it's internal as well. That here on this earth, we battle against our sinful flesh, even as believers. But when we are gracefully given our resurrection bodies, like Jesus' body, there will be no more sinful flesh. That we will be free of sin, 
free to obey God. And you understand how much your heart longs for that freedom. That if you have been born of God through faith in Christ Jesus, you long to obey God, but so often are kept from doing so because of your sinful flesh. My hope is that as citizens of heaven, you long for the day where obedience to God will be second nature because we will have no sinful nature to lead us astray. So this change is not just external, it's internal as well. And so Paul makes one last appeal to stand firm in order to obtain this wonderful prize to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus. And so if there's one takeaway, let me summarize things like this. Races are hard. They are. We exert ourselves to run, that it would be easier to stop, that sometimes everything else in our body is telling us to stop. But what motivates you in a race? It is the finish line. It is the prize. That we're able to endure and push our bodies in ways that we didn't think possible because we are looking towards that prize. And the reason why we as Christians can strive and endure suffering and passionately seek God, battle against the flesh, the reason why we can do this is because we fix our eyes on Jesus and he is our prize. That all the suffering, all the hardship that we experience here pales in comparison to the joy of the prize that is before us. So let me close by reading from 1 Corinthians once again, Paul using this analogy of a race to, to end this point in your minds. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Would you run the race so as to receive the prize of Christ, that as he has already laid hold of you, that you would lay hold of him? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we confess that this race is difficult at times, that our flesh is still strong, that the temptations of the world are alluring, that we are easily discouraged by failures, that we are easily distracted by victories. Lord, that there are indeed times when we do go astray. But we thank you that you have saved us to the utmost meeting every requirement in the law on our behalf, Jesus, and taking the punishment that we deserved. But also, Lord, graciously giving us your spirit that he would guide us, that he would renew us from the inside out, that he would empower us to run this race all the way to the end. And so, Lord, may we do it with joy. May we do it with our hearts and minds set upon our reunification with you, Lord Jesus that as you have already laid hold of us, we would indeed lay hold of you with the new bodies that you have promised in the resurrection. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.